From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 122 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host, Peter Winson. And today, going to be cheating a little, because working on a bit of a short schedule with all my traveling, it is NWA Worldwide from October 3rd, 1987, a unique show, although not entirely unique because the NWA, Jim Crockett Promotions, would do this from time to time where they would run one match over the course of a full-length hour show. It happened with Ric Flair and Barry Windham on a different worldwide earlier in 1987, or maybe it was 86, but here we are in 87. It is Ronnie Garvin and Ric Flair in a steel cage in Detroit for the NWA title, a rather famous match in JCP's history that would lead up into Starcade 87. But before I get into all that and go through the Garvin Flair rivalry, let me get in my plugs. You can email me, greetingsmaltown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsmaltown. Give me a follow on Twitter at GFAllentownPod. That is at GFAllentownPod. And you may be listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Do check out the other great shows on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, such as Days of Thunder, looking at WCW Thunder from early 1998 at the moment. Worldcast, looking at world-class championship wrestling from 1983, and it doesn't really get much better than that. And all the other great shows through the years, Strong Style Story, Bigfoot Pro Wrestling Podcast, all, all the rest that you can hear on Pro Wrestling Only. Now, I mentioned my Twitter feed, and anybody who follows me on that would have seen these micro-updates of my time in England over the past week, uh, more specifically London, because I really didn't go anywhere else unless you count Greenwich as a separate place. By the way, no mean street posse in that Greenwich. However, I did get to go to the Prime Meridian, which is where I actually bought a shirt at the Prime Meridian. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm some sort of map nerd. But as I'm going through the exhibits there, I didn't really understand too much of the navigational stuff and the technology. All I know is that they just routinely killed Edmund Haley, the guy who was named for Haley's Comet is named after, that is. They just routinely killed him for, like, getting stuff wrong. There were, like, three different exhibits. So I don't know why they were so determined on burying him. So anyway... You've probably seen, you know, other updates and some wisecracks about Buckingham Palace. And, you know, there are certain things that I have to get into. And I'm not going to say too much about the airline flight. I flew British Airways to and from. So it was a direct flight from Boston. So from that perspective, it was fine. I was going to, you know, rant, oh, the woman in front of me reclined on the way over there. But to be honest, I mean, that that type of stuff is, is so played out. 
I mean, really, what's the deal with airline peanuts? I mean, it would basically just be rehashing all that stuff. Although, the thing about peanuts is British Airways, surprisingly good on the food. Just make sure you get pasta instead of chicken. All I could ever think of was... (laughs) All I could ever think of was Leslie Nielsen at Airplane. What was it we had for dinner tonight? Well, we had a choice, steak, fish. Yes, yes, I remember I had lasagna. It's better that, since I was going to see a baseball game over in London, and the Yankees had invited Reggie Jackson to come to London with them as part of their alumni group. I, all I could think of was him trying to kill the Queen in the Naked Gun, but yeah, that's that's neither here nor there, and as it turns out, the Queen didn't go to either of the games. So I c- kind of want to go through, as I went through my several days over in London, with you know various highlights, such as going to visit Abbey Road, you know, the crosswalk from the uh, Beatles album cover, just to kind of see what it's like. Apparently, there's a webcam. I've never checked it out or anything, but and I'm going to just warn you right now, this is going to be uncensored. You might hear some S and F bombs in this, and maybe even potentially a C bomb. You never can tell, because I have been hanging out in Britain for a couple of days, but holy shit okay we we got in you know in the morning because it was a red-eye flight and then you know in the afternoon we go up to abbey road just to you know check things out like i said and turns out it is a mecca for shitheads Uh, i know it's a line from a henry rollins thing from way back but i can't think of a more accurate way to describe this where Yeah, I could have had my picture taken in the middle of the street like these other morons who are blocking traffic and like these people driving the cars are just incredibly pissed off as if they don't know what the drill is. But the people running out in front are stupid like, oh, I have to get my exact shot. There can't be a car in the background or anything. So the picture I took was just me like pointing a thumb like, look at these fucking morons like running out in front of traffic like this. And then as it turns out, for my wife and I to get to where we were going, we actually had to cross the street legitimately. We're probably the only people who actually did that out of all the ones that were there at that time. So it was nice to go to see that that was one of the strangest places on earth. Next morning, we went out to Westminster Abbey as we had a tickets for a tour there. Yes, very historic building, although you have all these uh, sort of bricks or whatever honoring those that have died. I mean, it was built in 1066, yeah, so you're going to have a lot of people, but really, does it have to be a fucking Neville Chamberlain thing? I mean, it, it's it's like the Hockey Hall of Fame or the Baseball Hall of Fame at this point. It's like everybody freaking gets in. Like, Jack Morris doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame because his ERA is only 6% better than the league average for over the course of his career, but for Christ's sakes, I'm like, what a Neville Chamber- Chamberlain, Jesus, he governed to the score, and he didn't even do that well. Okay, it just leads them right into World War II. But again, a, a very historic building, the, the ceilings, all that stuff. I could, I could certainly appreciate that very much. Did a little pub crawl on Saturday night, go to the King's Arms, the one from the show Veep, the episode season three, episode seven, that they went to where they made Selena drink a beer, Daniwa, Daniwa, but they're saying down in one where she's going to, basically chugged the beer well that apparently that king's arms closed but there was no sign explaining why so me and my friend we kind of looked like idiots we're like oh we got to go to this place it's like 
We have to make sure we go to this King's Arm because it's from a TV show. And the other one, you know, God love them, it's a gay bar for bears. So I don't think we would really fit in all that well. Now, I have to admit, I really do like these pubs. I also like the fact that we had a gin bar in the hotel that we were staying in. Gin not being my thing, but for my wife. But they had other beers and fairly reasonable prices on bourbons as well, as I found out much later on. So on Sunday, go to the second baseball game. If you saw the first one, it featured both teams scoring six runs in the first inning, which is pretty wild. But here's how electrified London was by this baseball series. One of the pubs we were in on Saturday night would not turn off cricket, which was Australia versus New Zealand. So basically a who gives a shit of, oh, look, it's these two freaking countries that can't be bothered to, like, differentiate their flags all that much. Sorry if I, you know, for any Australian or New Zealand listeners out there, but for God's sakes, could you differentiate a little bit more than just having stars in slightly different locations with the Union Jack up in the corner? I mean, we would appreciate it if you did, you know, kind of stress your own individuality. I mean, that, that would be nice. I mean, Canada doesn't have a Union Jack on the flag anymore. So, yeah, London, not so much into this. Might have been a little bit more into the World Cricket Cup. Might have been a little bit more into the Women's World Cup. Although, I did not see the England versus USA game on Tuesday night because we were out to dinner and we kind of got trapped in the restaurant we were in due to slow service, which... Uh, you know, the the English model of, well, you don't really tip. There's like this service charge that they put on the bill sometimes. I wonder about that because I don't feel like you get as good a service from it because my, my wife said, oh, well, they, they want you to hang around or whatever. Like, well, I, I'd rather have, you know, better quality service, but that that's kind of a debate for another time. So this baseball game on Sunday we, we actually made sure to go in early. Like, well, we got to go around the stadium. We have to get merch for my wife's nephews and, you know, just try to take it all in. Well, the merch line was a dystopian nightmare that not even George Orwell could have dreamed of. And by the way, one of the places, I guess, where he worked is where it was between the tube station where we had to get off for our hotel and the actual hotel itself so i used to give him a little bit of a salute every single time i would walk by stood in this merch line for almost an hour before we realized yeah they're gonna be sold out of freaking everything by the time we get up there so we decided to get something like you know programs for the boys and other stuff that we could order online that in theory would be available up there so Perhaps some valuable drinking time lost, although I was able to duck out of that line and get my wife and I beer, which, shockingly enough, once again, reasonably priced in that it was lower than what I would have to pay at TD Garden at Boston Bruins games, and not by an insignificant margin either. Like, I I looked at my credit card statement, it is $4.50 American less for about four ounces more of beer. So good on the British for that one. Also the fact that they were selling beer right up through the ninth inning, which given the way the game went, (laughs) glad they did that. And I stuck around through the eighth inning just to make sure that I could have a beer in the eighth inning, something you can't do in the United States. But there was a particular incident that took place in the second inning of this game. As we're way up in left field, literally in row 65. I think that there's about 10 to 15 rows behind me. 
I was told that it went all the way to 75, but I didn't feel like climbing up anymore to find out exactly how many there were. In the second inning, I noticed Aaron Hicks is hitting 211 at the time for the Yankees, who have a very good lineup top to bottom. And I was scratching my head, why is this guy, who might be the weakest hitter in the Yankee lineup, why is he batting third on this occasion? So I raised that point, and some fat-ass guy in front of me, and a little bit to the right, turns to me, and I'm wearing my Orioles jersey and my Orioles hat because I'm, I'm representing, and there were a lot of Orioles fans there, believe it or not. He turns to me and says, oh, what's the Orioles record this year? So I looked at him, and, and I judged really quick, and I made sure that he was not Brit. You know, If he was British, maybe I was going to give him a pass. I couldn't really tell. I wanted to make sure he wasn't Richard Land because I don't want to offend him or anything. Notice, you know, he's not at the baseball game. So I just said, why don't you shut the fuck up, huh? How about that, all right? Why don't you mind your own fucking business? And the best part about all this is you have all these Brits and uh, around. You know, yeah, there's some Americans in. And nobody even flinches at me telling this guy to go F himself for basically mouthing off to me and inserting himself into my conversation. And needless to say, this dude who turned out to be a Yankee fan was completely shook by all this to the point where he and his two pals, they like rearranged their seats so that he would be as far away from me as possible. So once again, you know, sometimes bullying does work especially if somebody is going to get up in your face about something because I wasn't going to tolerate any shit from him. And by the way, this this is at, you know, I'm questioning the Aaron Hicks thing, him hitting third. He actually struck out to snuff out a rally. The Yankees did score two runs in that inning, but I was actually correct in that regard. Just I, I also got to rewind to the beginning of this game. That was very unusual because you have the national anthems before I don't know how customary it is at UK sporting events to have God Save the Queen played beforehand. And I'm not as familiar with it. Yeah, I, I know my country, Tis of Thee, the, the cover song, I guess you could call it, of the <laughs> God Save the Queen. But uh, like, I didn't realize how short that song was. It was like 30 seconds. Like, God Save Our Queen. And then I, I always half expect Bad News Barrett's theme to come up. The song itself is absolutely fine. I don't have a problem with it. It's just that I was really taken aback by one thing. And, you know, the U.S. National Anthem is about a minute 52 in length. And I would say this thing was about 35, 40 seconds. Now, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, it's it's nice that it's short and brief like that. And I'm like, well, I don't know. This country with this lengthy history like them, you'd think that they would have a national anthem that was, oh, I don't know, longer than the W Balls interlude from the Snoop Doggy Dog album Doggy Style. I mean, you'd think that it would be at least a little bit longer than one of those Snoop interludes that were from that album. But anyway, I mean, it, 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 it was all good. The, the game itself, the Red Sox bullpen imploded in the seventh inning, leading to one of the more hilarious Sweet Caroline renditions in the middle of the eighth inning. And my wife and I, we stuck around longer than any of our friends, except we, we left before the end of the bottom of the eighth because I just had a vision of we're in row 65, the vomitory lets people out about row 31, like, 
oh, we're going to have to now pass 34 rows of people to get out of this stadium just to get to a train station to have a 45-minute ride back to central London. I don't want any of that. So the next day, we decide to go to this place called the British Museum. I had very conflicted feelings going into that place. It is actually free admission, except that they put a please donate five pounds box at like every freaking door to, to the point where I said to my wife, maybe we should do that around our house. Just make sure everybody drops in, even if it's like two bucks uh, to, to enter any room. You know, it was it was merely a suggestion, but, you know, they were kind of really driving the point home that, oh, yeah, this is a free museum. And I'm thinking, huh, how, how can it be free? Because all, all this stuff that's here. And you just think about it and how basically it's all these antiquities. It's basically just stolen shit from everywhere else in the world where I wanted to, like, go up to the curator and say, how did this get here? Like, in re- reference to the Rosetta Stone or the two-headed snake thing that was taken from the Americas or or whatever the hell it was. Like, how did this get here? How did this end up here? It's like if you take a rock from Yellowstone National Park and skin your ass, but, like, here's this museum that is basically the most fucked-up episode of Pawn Stars. Oh, right here, I got some uh, authentic Egyptian blah, blah, blah. And I half expect, like, Rick Harrison or Chumley to come in and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I got a friend who's an expert in uh, Egyptian antiquities. Uh, let me call him up, and he'll come down and tell us how much this thing is worth. Like, I actually did see some Pawn Stars, you know, Pawn Shop type thing that's on in London, but uh, enough about British TV. So the most fucked up edition of Scrabble. I, I don't even know what that was. So in the British Museum, it's just overrun by these extremely confused tourists who uh, you know, just will not get out of the way for anything at all. And I don't even mean just like the children. The adults were bad too. And certain rooms are like 90 degrees in that place. Like, oh, well, why should we give a shit about preserving any of this? I mean, it's really not ours, is it? I mean, you know, I mean, we stole it fair and square. And it was just reinforcing the notion that I had had earlier in the weekend. And this is, this is okay, this is not necessarily a negative. I actually enjoyed London very much. But I also know that if I break their balls, well, the British are known for their sense of humor. They are the Puff Daddy of nations. And I'll explain why. Because Puff Daddy, there was a period of time, oh, I don't know, 1997, where you just kind of stand there and in the back of everybody's track go, uh, uh. And it would be like these beats that were stolen from these other songs. But he, I respect the hell out of him because he made a crap load of money doing that back then. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe it sounds conflicting, but I certainly respect the hell out of Great Britain for what they accomplished through the years. It's just that when you look at it, a lot of things got really screwed up from the imperialism of the past. Some might say, oh, well, they civilized the world. Well, you know, there was a certain price to all of that. It's like every time I had a complaint, like internet on the train, it's like, oh, shit. Well, maybe if they had stolen the fucking internet from India, maybe they could have actually gotten it right in this place. But 
it was just kind of complaints about things that were going on and it, it was it was kind of taking over my head to a certain point I mean I, I kind of lost interest in the Rosetta Stone I did like to see the Easter Island statue heads because it's highly unlikely that I'll ever be able to actually go there so from that perspective it was okay but I, I got like I had like a panic attack in that place like and my wife did too like I gotta go across to Starbucks because uh, I'm gonna crap my pants like I didn't even want to take a shit in the British Museum. I, I wanted to go and shit up a Starbucks rather than shit up the British Museum. Also, uh, uh, Westminster Abbey had like the smelliest bathroom. I swear to... I was going to go in there, like take a piss. It smelled so bad. It was like, what did they like preserve like Edward the Conqueror's original turds from 1066? Like, like in some sort of, you know, display case and that's what's sticking up the bathroom? I don't know. I didn't want to go all the way in and find out. But going out to see the Prime Meridian <laughs> Greenwich on on uh, Tuesday was uh, quite quite a bit of fun. You know, uh, like I said, I didn't quite understand some of the technology that went into deciding what would be the Prime Meridian. It was mainly because people were using the British maps and navigational charts anyway. So figured make Greenwich the actual center. So isn't it funny how you know you get a character from Greenwich in Triple H who eventually becomes the center of the wrestling universe if you don't believe me just ask him just one quick final thing before i actually go back to the worldwide episode that i'm covering here the best beer that i had in my time there and i went out of my way to go back to this one pub that actually had this beer because i could not find it anywhere else hogsback brewing traditional english ale on cask and i love having cask beer here in the u.s it's not really something you find a lot of places but you go to a pub around London, and almost every place has between three and seven casks. So it's nice to have that kind of option. It's also nice to not have all those bubbles in your stomach, especially if you're running out of the British Museum, running across the street to Starbucks to shit up a bathroom, because uh, it's it's preferable to not do that. So anyway, it's NWA Worldwide from October 3rd. 1987, as I said, a particularly interesting show in that it is one match, Ronnie Garvin challenging Ric Flair for the NWA World Heavyweight title. And this was, I believe, the original plan for Starcade 86. It's always a thought, well, wasn't it going to be Magnum TA and Ric Flair before Magnum had his accident? Well, in the TV, even up to October, Magnum is feuding with Jimmy Garvin. So it doesn't look like he's going to go from that to the world title. In fact, I'd heard that Magnum TA would probably face Nikita Koloff for the U.S. title and get his final victory over Nikita, and then they would kind of move on and then build through 1987 with Magnum. But because of his accident, who knows how that's going to work. But Ronnie Garvin and Ric Flair on its own stands as a rivalry that lasted several years. And you think of Ric Flair's greatest opponents throughout the years, and it's a very hard task to rank them. You know, a top ten list, you know, that would be worth something to try and come up with. I think Terry Funk certainly ranks near the top of that list, although it was very, very short in 1989, to the point where I don't even know if you can rank him the same way 
as ones where he had longer programs and more matches against people. Ricky Steamboat seems to be the obvious number one opponent for Ric Flair, considered they had the, quote, the trilogy from 1989. But when you get to second place and into third place, well, who is Ric Flair's best opponents? It depends on what you value. Do you value the storyline? If that's the case, maybe it is somebody like a, I don't know, Randy Savage, or perhaps a Sting? Who knows? Or do you value the match quality? Well, I think a Lex Luger would fit the bill for that, Harley Race, or even Ronnie Garvin, as we'll see on the match on this show. Now, this match was taped on September 25th in Detroit, Michigan. And you say Michigan, 1987, a huge year for pro wrestling in the state, in that state. it It's a huge market where the WrestleMania 3 crowd was a hell of a lot of people, somewhere between, uh, let's say, 8,500 and 110 billion. I don't know. It's a very very disputed uh, <laughs> disputed number. Here they're in downtown Detroit at the Joe Louis Arena. This is the debut show for Jim Crockett Promotions there. And they they got to be thinking, well, we got to do something big because we're going to Michigan they got WrestleMania 3, and not only that, the Saturday Night's main event that led up to it as well. That's an episode I actually kind of want to cover soon because I did, was not on the Place to Be podcast rotation of guests when they did that Saturday Night's main event. This show at the Joe, <laughs> that kind of rhymes, only drew 8,000. And that arena, I know for hockey, held nearly 20,000. So. On a percentage basis, maybe not the greatest thing in the world, but 8,000 still pretty strong for uh, Jim Crockett Promotions in a debut, I think, in Detroit. And there's nothing bigger you could do to make an impression than a world title change. And, of course, maybe you could have the option of switching it back later at your big show. The problem is... Would you, when you have somebody like Ronnie Garvin, it might be a little preconditioned where, oh, sure, he won the title, but we know the other guy is winning it back in two months. So you're kind of setting yourself up where the audience is expecting this one thing. And that's fine if the hero babyface is going to come back and get the title back. But it's an odd psychology when your top guy is this heel like Ric Flair who everybody sort of likes, but it is kind of strange that they're making their big moment, this heel champion getting his title back, by the way, for the fifth time. It's not like he's, you know, he's lost it for the first time and he's looking to get it back for a second time. I mean, they already did that at Starcade 83, which was four years before this. But the other thing is with Ronnie Garvin... Oh, he's an old guy. Is he worthy of the world title? Well, who was viable in the NWA at this point? Let's just take the babyface side. Dusty Rhodes, first name that comes up. You don't want to do that again. You did that the year before at the Bash. Dusty and Flair had been done to death. It's time to have him do something else. And in fact, he probably should have taken a step down the card. Again, Magnum's accident probably made him a little bit more hesitant to do so. Jimmy Garvin? Well, probably not, because I don't think he could be taken seriously on that world title level. He had the feud with Rick earlier in the year at the Great American Bash time in the summer. 
Barry Windham, that's a name. I mentioned the, the worldwide match with he and Flair from earlier. Uh, he seems to be probably the most viable guy if you're not going to consider anything else that's going on, such as, I don't know, Wyndham's flakiness at various times in his career. Garvin I have as the third most viable guy. So you say, well, who is second? I have that as the UWF world champion, Dr. Death Steve Williams, which is something that maybe could have pushed him, uh, I don't want to say to the moon or anything, but you could have unified the titles that way, and then Rick gets his big win back, and you could almost treat him as a babyface in that, well, he's sticking up for Jim Crockett promotions, and this invader from the UWF has won our world title. But there's also, well, we don't want to have anybody from the promotion we bought being put over the guys that we already have here. And that's kind of a mistake because you're you're taking away potential things you can do to make money down the road. I also had Nikita Koloff on there. So my rankings are Wyndham first, Dr. Death second, Garvin third, Nikita Koloff fourth, Dusty fifth, and Jimmy Garvin sixth. Now, I don't know if I left somebody off, that, but there didn't seem to be... I mean, Wahoo McDaniel is just you know too old at that point where that just wasn't going to work. Unless you turned somebody, if you wanted to do a Lex Luger turn, but it's probably way too soon considering you just joined the Horsemen earlier in the year. But being this world champion for this brief period of time from the end of September to the end of November... It's like taking a temp job with the potential for maybe something more. I, I don't know. I don't know why I keep making references to this thing. Maybe it's because you know now that I'm out of work, I, I kind of think about how stupid that might have been to leave a full time job. And you know, well, I thought it was going to become full time, but we'll see. But for the prestige of it, for somebody like Ronnie Garvin, who ironically enough, you know, working in ICW and being part of that you know, go nuclear plan to expose the business back in 1979. Having the NWA world title for even two months probably does feel like a nice chip for, you know, an end-of-career sort of guy hanging around for only a couple of more years. The reason why you might not want to have the title for this little run, like a Wyndham or a Dr. Death, is nobody wants to be Tommy Rich. Nobody wants to be Kerry Von Eric. And I don't mean, you know, for any problems they might have had. It's they became defined by these small championship reigns, although I guess Kerry maybe got defined more by the drug issues that he would have later on. But when you say Tommy Rich, you think of, oh, he held the NWA title for four days. But that was something that he was never going to win that title back. So it was something that was pretty much impossible for him to live up to. So I've vamped enough (laughs) just talking about this because it is just one match to set up Starcade 1987. And this is episode 122. The damn sports series is over. So I'm trying my hand at something where I'm trying to pull sports stuff from around the time this show would have aired. In this case, it would be early October 1987. So you're going to hear probably some late season baseball, baseball playoff stuff. Maybe a few surprises. Orange waiting and the pitch. He swings as a little roller back to Tanana. He gloves it. Throw to first. The Tigers are the champions. They win it. 
And Kanana does a great job. And they are celebrating on the diamond. The Tigers are mobbing each other over near first base. It's quite a comeback for the 1987 Tigers having to sweep the Toronto Blue Jays on the last weekend of the season. So this actually is the same weekend that this episode of Worldwide would have aired. But they get it done, and they were helped by a trade deadline acquisition, Doyle Alexander, who cost them John Smoltz, which I think they might have regretted long term. But And hey, 1987, big year for sports in Detroit. You got the Tigers coming back, winning the American League East on the last weekend of the season at home in dramatic fashion. You get the Red Wings, who rose from the dead after having the worst record in the league in 86. They make the playoffs and go on a little run in 87. The Detroit Pistons take a step forward, make it to the Eastern Conference Finals losing in seven games to the Celtics. You get WrestleMania three up at Pontiac. You get this world title change down at the Joe Louis Arena. And I guess you get the Detroit Lions. But hey, you know, you, you can't quite have everything. I mentioned the Joe Louis Arena, which is where this match took place. It was built in 1979 for the Detroit Red Wings, so replacing the old Olympia, which is a barn-shaped building, oh, not in the greatest area of Detroit, which is why management wanted to move it downtown to the waterfront. They built that arena, but the Pistons did not move into Joe Louis Arena. Instead, they opted to go to the Silver Dome for about a decade before eventually building an arena at the Palace at Auburn Hills out in the suburbs. So for quite a while, the Red Wings were the only team playing downtown, at least for the winter sports, football and basketball. The Tigers have always played downtown. I I kind of wish that of any stadium that I wish I could have gone to that was torn down in the past, Tiger Stadium definitely near the top of the list. But that has been unfortunately torn down. And in fact, Joe Louis Arena is being demolished right now that whole process and what's happening to the land is rather interesting because you may have heard that the city of Detroit went bankrupt after a certain point and the land will be turned over to the federal guarantee insurance company so they're going to get that land on the waterfront in Detroit once everything is torn down which is being done at the expense of of the city, and that's all being done to settle those bankruptcy claims. A lot of famous moments in that arena outside of this particular match. Steve Eiserman, Game 7 goal against St. Louis in 1996, Game 7. Red Wings actually won Stanley Cups twice in that building in 97, which broke a 42-year drought, and in 2002, 1980. Republican convention was held there with Ronald Reagan accepting the nomination and the Pittsburgh Penguins also won the Stanley Cup there in 2009 beating Detroit in a game seven but I I really don't like to talk about road teams winning game sevens in the Stanley Cup finals unless it's 2011. Worldwide actually has a cold open with Ric Flair coming to the ring and then the theme for worldwide hits And our only commentator on this is David Crockett, which I don't know if this is something that he insisted upon, but uh, it it is funny to hear him working solo a la Vince Scully or something, calling a Ronnie Garvin match that just happens to be the biggest moment of his career, considering how orgasmic he would get over some Ronnie Garvin squash matches in the WTBS studio. But even here in the bigger arena in Detroit, David feels the exact same way. We've all heard Ron Garvin hands a stone. He wants to be the world heavyweight champion. Ric Flair, one of the four horsemen, one of the greatest world champions ever. It's come down to this. 
Will he do it? Will Ric Flair still hold on to the championship? Or will Ron Garvin defeat him? Let's go to the ring and find out. Now, you're probably wondering, why is David Crockett calling this solo? Like, where is Jim Ross? Well, Jim Ross is coming over from the UWF, and he's not really one of the main guys yet. Say, where is Bob Cottle? Well, I don't know if they would have Cottle call a house show match in Detroit, because that is effectively what this is. It is a match from a house show. It's not a full television taping proper. Why not Tony Schiavone? Well, we're going to hear from Tony in a little bit. In fact, right at the top of the match, we get to hear from good old Tony, who I don't know if he's ever mentioned whether he wished he could call this match. And maybe, you know, he's done a lot of podcasts now, and who knows if this type of thing has ever come up. But we do learn that this has been taped from a station in Baltimore, their airing of Worldwide. So how do I know that? Well, Tony Schiavone does a bizarre ad read for the station's programming coming up and for a house show. Fans, get ready for wild and crazy guys all this coming week on Baltimore's 54 8 o'clock movie. Monday night, it's Chevy Chase in Modern Problems here on Baltimore 54. The NWA, the Baltimore Arena, it all comes your way. Saturday, October 17th, the bell time, 8 o'clock. On the card, a lumberjack match. Each lumberjack will have a tennis racket at ringside. The Midnight Express against the Lightning Express. And two out of three falls for the world heavyweight title. Nature Boy Rick Flair against Ron Garvin. Saturday, October 17th, 8 o'clock in Baltimore. I think it's fascinating that he's plugging the movie on the local station along with the upcoming house show. It's like the cousin of when Vince McMahon would tell you what was coming up on Silk Stockings later on on USA after Monday Night Raw. But this one is more interesting to me because it's localized. Like, did he have to do this for, like, other stations that are airing this episode of NWA Worldwide saying what their movie of the week is going to be? That show in Baltimore, looking at the results, it drew 8,000 on October 17th. And I'm not going to read the whole card. But the interesting, one of the interesting results on here is Sting defeated the Terminator. Now that day, Sting made his debut on World Championship Wrestling, so his first match in the WTBS studio. But Sting defeated the Terminator. This must be how he gained the respect of. Uh, certain movie characters that's why robocop was at his side in 1990 for capital combat because he had defeated the terminator and earned his respect now as for the movie modern problems this is not anything that i've seen it is a 1981 movie starring chevy chase and dabney coleman coleman had a good run in the early 80s i don't know if this would be a part of it although the movie did i guess turn a profit it turned 26 million at the box office against a budget of 8 million so not too bad but i think it's rotten tomatoes is at 37 percent for an audience rating so not particularly beloved but i gotta read this paragraph kind of explaining the plot because it cracked me up so damn much max fiedler chevy chase is an air traffic controller in new york's kennedy international airport whose life is slowly going down the drain his girlfriend darcy patty darbinville has just left him because of his jealousy now everywhere he goes seems to run into her with another man driving him nuts one night while he's driving home from a party at a gay nightclub in lower manhattan a tanker truck spills nuclear waste onto his car and through his open sunroof covering him with glowing green goo the next day he notices he has developed telekinetic powers with this newfound discovery max decides to put his powers to use by striking back at his tormentors to win back the love of darcy 
Even if the movie's not that good, it's got a prime Dabney Coleman, and it's got to be better than Cops and Robertson. So as for the match, Flair is in the light blue trunks for this one, and Ronnie Garvin is in yellow. And for a second, I thought he was wearing green knee pads, but apparently I was just imagining those knee pads onto his bare legs. As we start, Flair is stalling with the usual stick of holding out his hands and then coming back and putting it through his hair. Now the cage, this being a cage match, is done not because this is some sort of blood feud, even though these guys have been off and on for years, but it is to prevent interference, as David Crockett says, which, what a noble concept, instead of just sitting there waiting for the interference to come in a cage match. It's the psychology of these things in more recent years, I think, has been screwed up up at least in a WWE perspective and we get extended lockups to start and then into the side headlock shoulder block hip toss by Ronnie Garvin that's babyface offensive start number 71 and look at my template guide for that one Rick now goes for the top wrist lock and woos at the crowd three times as Garvin is fighting it. As David Crockett screws up by calling Flair a three-time champion. Now, I wrote this down in my notebook, and I'm not counting any ones where he dropped it in Japan or Australia and then got it right back. I'm talking like the traditional canon Ric Flair title reigns and I wrote 81, 83, 84, 86. 81 he wins it from Harley, 83 Starcade, 84 wins it back from Kerry, 86 wins it back from Dusty. So he's a four-time champion. I'm wondering which one in his head he wasn't counting. Are they not including 81 through 83? Because the way Starcade 83 was treated was almost like Flair was winning it for the first time even though he was champion for a year and a half, two years before that. Garvin does finally get Flair down to the mat and I I am starting to be a little worried about David Crockett being able to carry this on his own because he is not exactly Vin Scully as I said before but he is a little bit more serious he's not gonna be over the top yelling with Ronnie Garvin in there at least for now but once we get into the corner Garvin starts, uh, well, he actually gets chopped first, and that is where he, his attention is gotten, because you see a lot of these chop battles between Flair and Garvin in their matches, not only this, but the later Starcade match, and if you go back to the ones before this, and they actually go into the ad break for Worldwide, because if this is going to be the whole show, you got to get in your commercials somewhere, but to their credit, for what the time of the match is listed as, they did not really leave anything out. As they come back, they are still in the corner going back and forth as Garvin gains a slight advantage because Flair is backing off slowly. I really like the pacing of this one early. Like they're not lying around on the mat, but they are, you know, going slow enough that you can build it and get into that next gear eventually. And Tommy Young, when they lock up again, he can't, the referee, he can't even break the, the two of them up. That's how intense this is. As you get a little bit more back and forth and Flair down on the mat then begs off. So Garvin keeps gaining these advantages. And we go back into the corner. Flair lays two chops uh, and Garvin turns him around and lays two of his own. And the noise that these things are making is part of the magic of the Flair-Garvin match is that you can actually hear them hitting each other and they are laying it in with the way the chops are going. Flair gets tossed across the ring by Garvin, who is then blocked by Tommy Young, 
because Flair was in the corner. I'm not sure what that was about. He he hooked Garvin's arm from uh, hitting Ric Flair. It this is the kind of stuff that you know you'd see with like a, a Earl Hebner or a Tommy Young that kind of takes me out of the match. And now I'm starting to worry if they're going to get Gene Kaniski disease. And Gene Kaniski at the aforementioned Starcade '83 match made himself a little too involved for a special referee. It's like, dude, you're not the show. I'm not sure why they had you as a special referee, other than the fact that you were a former world champion. So Flair actually sends Garvin into the cage, but it ends up being blocked. But neither man actually ends up getting it. And Garvin just beats on Flair a little bit more as a corner whip and a backdrop. And then Garvin locks in the front chancery, or as I call it, the Belzer lock. I really think that a front face lock should be called the Belzer lock. And he's cranking it but good, doing the arm motion to kind of indicate that he's really got it locked in. As Flair carries Garvin into the corner to try and break it up that way to kind of ram him in there. But Garvin actually hangs on to the hold. And he turns around and... Holy, I mean, I, I, I got to get, like, the, the noise of these chops is just incredible. I mean, Flair was giving up layers of skin in this series with some of these chops that were being laid in. I mean, Gar- Garvin's chops were going to take his skin off flares not as much although i'm sure garvin uh, could certainly feel them as well and he locks the front face lock excuse me the belzer lock back in in the center of the ring but then he gets run into the corner again with a little bit more force but no he's unable flair is unable to break the hold now they're down on the mat in the in the center as they get up flair finally counters with a suplex but once again Garvin hangs on, not to the hold, but he ends up landing on top of Flair, and he gets two on a pinfall attempt as they go to a second ad break. And luckily, David Crockett doesn't say, as Worldwide rolls on, you know, that old tell whenever you're watching Raw and you're really zoned out, and Michael Cole says, and Raw rolls on. That is vintage Finn Balor jumping over the top rope like that. So now they are back to the corner bit with the chop exchange and flair is throwing them but good but garvin when he throws his chops in response it seems to be he's doing what rick is doing plus one or plus five in some cases and lands some corner mount punches and flair walks towards center and ends up flopping which does buy him a little bit of time as Ronnie Garvin has to move Tommy Young out of the way to get at Ric Flair, but that, that allows Flair to get in a shot, and then he hits a shoulder block, but then running the ropes, Garvin hits a drop toe hold and goes for the figure four, but that is kicked off. So Flair avoids getting put into his own finishing hold, and now we got a funny thing in interrupting this match somewhat. Once again, the ghost of Tony Schiavone makes himself known. Fans, get ready for wild and crazy guys all this coming week on Baltimore's 54 8 o'clock movie. Monday night, it's Chevy Chase 
in Modern Problems here on Baltimore 54. Tony would really like you to watch the movie Modern Problems. But anyway, Garvin locks in a chin lock. This is the lazy Rick Rude version where he sits on the back and kind of pulls the chin back. But it's only for a very brief period as he gives Rick these little slaps just to kind of insult him a little bit, but then just nails him with a monster chop. And David Crockett's reaction to this, I have to admit, is funny. Garvin gets a shoulder tackle, but then Flair hits a back elbow. And the question is, is Ric Flair going to be able to follow up on this? Because it seems like Garvin has the answer anytime Rick gets in a small amount of offense. He traps Garvin's arm over the top rope and starts working on the left arm, hits him with chops and right hands. And once on the mat, he locks in a hammer lock to the left arm of Garvin, and he's got the foot on the rope for leverage to kind of create heat with the crowd as they're yelling to the referee to, you know, please notice that Ric Flair has his foot on the rope as they go to an ad break. And I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, we're going to find out if Ric Flair could take advantage and maintain control of this bout. A traditionally strong union town, Teamsters members joined other unions supporting picketing NFL players and helped keep attendance to around 5,000 in a stadium that seats nearly 12 times that many. CBS cameras caught this altercation outside as emotions ran high. Police were not making arrests, even though reports came in of incidents involving egg throwing, as well as at least one car that had its windows smashed in by the pickets. Now, if you think the replacement referee thing in the NFL back in 2012 was wild, you should think back 25 years before that when they had actual replacement player games on a weekly basis for three weeks from the fourth week of the season to the sixth week of the season. You look up any team's stats for 1987 and the strikes going on as this show airs any team stats you see oh a guy played exactly three games well you can kind of figure out uh what his deal was especially like quarterbacks because they were summarily dismissed once the real players came back and they actually started trickling back and crossing the line in the second and third week i know that there were several players on the dallas cowboys who crossed the picket line and then as it turns out they got upset by the washington redskins i believe in the last week of replacement players and i think that may have inspired the movie The Replacements starring Keanu Reeves. Now, back to the match. As I said, the crowd was yelling at the referee, but David Crockett on commentary is yelling at Tommy Young as well, who eventually does catch Flair having his foot on the rope. See, this is more like a wrestling match in a cage, as I said, not for violence's sake. So with the DQ stipulations and stuff like that, you're still going to have rope breaks and you're still going to have five counts in order to kind of maintain a semblance of order because, like I said, this is a wrestling match as they announced that it is crossing the 15-minute mark as Flair does continue to work on the left arm. Not exactly some Brazilian jiu-jitsu MMA stuff going on, but good enough for the year 1987. As David Crockett now talks about a cage match from the past, but doesn't invoke any sort of detail to give us any sort of, I don't know, maybe some perspective on why he's mentioning this. Just remember, remember what Ric Flair did to Jimmy Garvin inside a steel cage. 
Well, since that particular match isn't on the WWE Network, the imagination runs wild. What did Ric Flair do to Jimmy Garvin? Did he sodomize him with a broom in the middle of the ring or something like that? I mean, it could be anything based on what you're saying. You just said, remember what he did to Jimmy Garvin in a cage match. And all he did was beat him with the figure four leg lock, win a date with Precious. This was on July 11th in Greensboro. And the date with Precious leads to Ronnie Garvin attacking Ric Flair and then flowing from the Jimmy Garvin feud into this feud right now. So, I don't know, just kind of a peculiar thing to say without sort of following up. As Flair gets three chops in the corner and then continues to work on the left arm, gets a wrist lock as Tommy Young stops a closed fist from being thrown by Ronnie Garvin, which I thought, once again, the referee kind of making himself a little too known here as Rick does the little slaps of Ronnie Garvin now, who fires back with open-hand shots and breaks free. But Flair does maintain some control when he gets Dark Garvin down on the mat, hits the classic Ric Flair running knee drop, goes for the cover and gets a two-count. And then a big chop in the center of the ring goes for the knee drop again, but this time he is caught, and Garvin now locks in the figure four leg lock, and Flair has his shoulders on the mat, and you get two very close two counts as he can't get to the ropes. He's trying to flip over the move to reverse the effect, or so the legend goes. You know, it's not like you put figure fours on your friends to see. I mean, you know, I, I certainly know that I haven't, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the sh- they go to an ad break now once again, but as they come back, the figure four is now gone, so maybe we missed something, or some sort of rope break, who knows. But Garvin is in control, and he locks in a half crab, so he is staying on the leg and working over Flair's leg. So story in this match is Garvin is going after Flair's leg and Flair is going after one of Garvin's arms, although you think that Flair will eventually go for the leg of Ronnie Garvin, seeing as though the figure four leg lock is his finishing hold. But once again, the ghost of Tony Schiavone makes himself known. Fans, get ready for wild and crazy guys all this coming week on Baltimore's 54 8 o'clock movie. Monday night, it's Chevy Chase in Modern Problems here on Baltimore 54. Funny that it's on Baltimore 54, seeing as though the infamous 1988 Baltimore Orioles, who lost their first 21 games of the season, would end up winning only 54 games, which, you know, huge improvement over last year's Orioles, which won 47 games, and the 2019 edition is, in fact, not that much better, and in fact, probably worse, if you exclude the first five games of the season, of which they wore four out of the first five. It's at this point now, we're about 20 minutes in, David Crockett, Kind of giving up all pretense of being neutral here. This is what I came here for. Hearing that makes me wonder what a David Crockett, Jesse Ventura duo would have sounded like on commentary. If you thought Jesse was mean to Tony at SummerSlam 89, holy crap. Don't, don't you be cheerleading Crockett. or It would be all stuff like that during the match. As Flair slowly gets to the rope, so Garvin has to break. So Garvin gets him up in the corner and just lays a big chop on him and then starts doing the little slaps like, you're my bitch, Rick, which is kind of funny. But then Rick does his move where he grabs both the legs and puts his feet on the ropes to try and get a pin, but that only gets a two count. 
And Garvin responds by grabbing Ric Flair's nose, which I've mentioned this before. People made fun of Ric Flair for having a large nose, and I just never noticed that. I, I don't understand why. So he, I guess he's just kind of grabbing out at what he could get. And they do the exchange again where Garvin hits a tackle and then he runs the ropes again. Flair drops down, but Garvin just stops and just kind of stands over him and nails him with rights and lefts. So it's kind of a funny sequence there. Then kind of an odd pause and he goes down and gets a two count on a pin try, which clearly they needed to communicate what was going to come next because (laughs) I can't hear you, pal. An elbow by Garvin now misses. Who then? But then he responds by locking in a side headlock, which Flair has the counter of lifting him up as if he is going for a back suplex, but drops him on the knee for a shin breaker. This is a sequence that he would repeat at the Starcade match. And now it is time to go to school as the Nature Boy locks in the figure four, the thing where he is grabbing the ropes, as David Crockett reminds us that this broke Dusty Rhodes' leg once upon a time. As Young sees Flair grabbing onto the ropes for leverage, so now the hold is broken. Another shin breaker by Flair as he is going after that leg, and now he actually centers him in in the middle of the ring to go for the figure four. Garvin gets the small package on the kind of spin around there, a two count, a two huge chops by Flair. Who then goes for that shin breaker move that he had just done, but now Garvin has a counter by just hitting him with the hands of stone as they go in to another ad break. And when we come back from that, it is a close two count. As they get up from that, you get a brief pause in the action. I'll give you one guess for what thing you're going to hear again. This just in, Francisco Franco is dead today at the age of 82. No, no, no! Fans, get ready for wild and crazy guys all this coming week on Baltimore's 54 8 o'clock movie. Monday night, it's Chevy Chase in Modern Problems here on Baltimore 54. Yeah, it's a different recurring bit involving Chevy Chase, although I can't help but think that Tony Schiavone is pissed that he doesn't get to call this match, and as this went along, you could see David Crockett at ringside opposite the hard camera, which is good because he probably had his pants completely around his ankles watching Garvin and Flair beat the hell out of each other. I mean, given that he loves seeing Garvin beat up jobbers, this probably takes things to the next level. And I really got to watch Modern Problems now because it's going to be totally stuck in my head. The one complaint I have about this match seems to be the pattern of shoulder block and then a move. This time, Flair gets a sleeper. It kind of feels like we're getting a little bit close to the finish, but not quite yet. As Garvin is responding to the crowd noise as he breaks out of the sleeper, he actually runs forward into the corner. Then Flair tries to run Garvin into the chain link fence that they use for their cage matches. And instead, Flair gets the fence, and then you get the cheese grater effect move where Garvin is just rubbing Rick's face back and forth three times, as a matter of fact. And the Nature Boy, none the worse for wear, kind of forgets where he is. Perhaps he's concussed. He apparently thinks he's in the World Wrestling Federation because now he tries to climb out of the cage like it's a WWF match. So which I'd say, you know, it's not the big blue cage you saw at WrestleMania 2 a year and a half before this, so you, you probably should know better. Maybe Tommy Young could intervene, let him know exactly where he is. But on top of the cage now, Rick gets his head slammed by Garvin into the top of it, and now he is busted open as he falls to the re- into the ring. 
And Garvin, on the top rope, hits a high cross body, shades of Ric Flair at Starcade 83, which ended that match with Harley Race. But this time, it only gets a two count. Now, I appreciate these little callbacks. Even if they are unintentional, they, they, they bring to mind things from previous Ric Flair title matches. And I guess it's something that it could be incidental because he's had so many of them as Flair gets sent into the cage once again. And it just seems like that so much time in this match passed before they started using the cage. And I actually kind of like that because if they had started going at it like that in the first four or five minutes, this thing is going to go a half hour. I I feel like it would have come off as a bit flaw. Garvin is completely in command. But Flair is trying to answer. He is firing back, but he can't get Garvin's head into the cage as Flair gets cheese gratered once again. And holy crap, is Flair just getting the crap beat out of him in this match. Garvin now with a backslide, shades of how Kerry Von Erich defeated Ric Flair for the NWA title in 1984 down in Texas. But Flair actually gets out of it on a two count and Flair is mushed into the cage once again. You get corner mount punches but Flair answers with an inverted atomic drop, after which he does the Flair flop because he's completely exhausted as they go into an ad break, and when they come back, the Nature Boy gets a side headlock takeover as they do a weird camera cut to what appears to be from the Hubble Space Telescope. Not sure if it was up there around that time, but just kind of want to give you an indication of where they were shooting it from. So I can't quite see what happens as they go into the bridge into the backslide spot, another close two count. And you can tell, once again, listening to David Crockett's voice, pants around ankles watching Ronnie Garvin, you're starting to get the sense that maybe not only is this match coming close to a finish, but Crockett is coming close to a finish as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, you get a shot of Garvin. He is mad. Hey, once again, I'm going to say, you do you. Some people are into cheerleader porn, others are into MILFs, and some people are into spiky-haired you know, tanned, blonde guys beating the crap out of other dudes. A corner mount punches once again. Flair responds once again with an inverted atomic drop, but Garvin hits the hands of Stone, goes for the pin, and you get the really close two-count with the foot on the ropes. And Garvin now will execute the Garvin stomp all over Ric Flair's body, the thing where he will just go around the world of the body parts. And this is not to be confused with the Bronier Stomp, which I actually had to look up. That's the name of the Led Zeppelin song that I've never actually heard anybody say the name because it never gets played on the radio, but you see it on, like, your Led Zeppelin compilation. And I hope I was saying it correct because I looked it up in multiple places. The Bronier Stomp. I guess when I was over in Europe, I could have, you know, actually gone to the place, but it was probably a lengthy train ride, and I quite frankly didn't have time with that. Flair gets the eyes, and then he goes up top, but he is slammed off there as constitutionally obligated in all Ric Flair matches. Vertical suplex by Ronnie Garvin gets a two count. And then an interesting spot to follow up. I'm not sure if I've ever seen this in another match, but I certainly enjoyed it very much. As Garvin goes to drop an elbow, but sort of does like a pump fake when Flair ends up moving. So he doesn't actually fall and miss on the move as he did earlier in the match. Garvin sees it, adjusts, and then hits the elbow where Flair had actually rolled to. 
This is just really good stuff, as Flair is then sent into the cage once again, but he fires back with some massive chops, and Garvin with some of his own. A corner whip by Garvin, a backdrop, and now Flair, once again, completely disoriented. Not a Flair flop or anything, but he's trying to escape the cage because he's forgetting which promotion he actually works for, which is funny because it's not like he's ever worked full-time in an Escape the Cage promotion like the WWF. So he goes up to the top of the cage, and we are nearing our finish here. And as he gets hit by Garvin, who went up after him, Flair gets crotched on the top rope at which point he staggers to the center of the ring. Garvin's still up on top, but instead of executing the crossbody as he did before, which only got a two-count, he's decided to go for what would become in the 90s the Johnny V. Bad sunset flip off the top rope. Not exactly an easy move to execute, but he nailed the move. Not unlike fellow Canadian champion Brian Orser landing two triple axles at the 1987 World Championships. Hey, a timely reference. That truly was an incredible pop, and I'm not talking about the six-tissue session that David Crockett had at the desk there, which thankfully we couldn't see. I'm talking about the crowd going crazy for, yes, Ronnie Garvin winning the NWA title. This is something that doesn't happen every day back in 1987. I mean, you know, maybe once a year, Flair would lose the title, and yeah, he would win it back, but... Now you get the baby faces running into the ring to congratulate Garvin as the show goes to one final commercial break. And as they show the baby faces in the ring, Dusty, Barry Windham, Michael Hayes, because yes, the Freebirds are baby faces, uh, Brad Armstrong, Rock and Roll Express. I'm kind of hoping that Tony Schiavone does another voiceover telling us to watch Modern Problems as all of this is going on. Now, as for future NWA champions who are in that ring for the congratulations of the new champion, I was interested. I thought, oh, well, here's Shane Douglas, a guy who seven years from now will throw down the title and mention the names of the former champions. I noticed he left Ron Garvin out of it, which is kind of sad considering he was there to congratulate him. But anyway, Sting is also there as well. It's kind of interesting to see him. But yes, uh, as I said, he's, you know, debuting around this time on the tbs show that is i mean he'd been wrestling at the uwf for quite some time leading up to that point so we're gonna hear from the new champ ronnie garvin and i'm hoping he does a little bit better than saying that rick flair wears a robe with cheap rhinestones he's the only wrestler with two left feet Nah, he does a little bit better than that i guess I'm sure his wife and kids must be thrilled to hear that winning a predetermined sporting events title is more important than getting married and the birth of your kids. Okay, but that, you know, once again, I'm going to say to each his own on that one. And the way they recap this show, they just show a replay of the end of the match for the last few minutes. So let's just sum up 
what happened here. So you get an old veteran from the promotion who's been there for several years, has been trying to win this title against Ric Flair for a very long time. You get the big pop out of it, sure. But the question is, now now what do you do? All right, so you go to Starcade and you have the rematch and you have Ric Flair win the title back and it all seems a little telegraphed, which therein lies the issue. They're thinking was, well, we got to have something big to counter this Survivor Series, which was announced around this time. And you got to have, oh, well, let's have Flair win the title back. And Garvin's title reign, when you have this sort of two-month period where he is the champion, there's this, I don't know how this got started. And I remember reading this in like a Pro Wrestling Illustrated Inside Wrestling back in the day. Like, oh yeah, Garvin took two months off to train to defend the title. And like, that makes his title reign seem a lot worse. Like, oh, he just sat out like like Wade Boggs sitting out the last week of the 86 season to protect his batting average so that Mattingly couldn't catch him to win the batting title. It really was not like that. And I don't know where that whole thing got started if he pissed somebody off like did he piss off bill after i don't quite understand that because he worked a full house show schedule and was on tv for most of that time he defended against arn anderson he defended against tully blanchard but he also had title defenses against like the warlord in greenville south carolina and then he was in a lot of tag matches as well he was doing a lot of jobber squash matches on the weekend tv and he certainly got de-emphasized after about the middle of october so really not long after this and in the month leading up it doesn't seem like that they are treating him as the champion but also you had Ric Flair kind of overshadowing him because he's doing the best interviews of his career, you know, just really fired up looking to get that title back. Of course, you could argue maybe they're a little bit, you know, baby face-ish and Ric Flair is supposed to be a heel, but that's a discussion, I think, for another time. So what does this do? Does this do anything for business in Detroit? A city which, well, you say, well, the WWF owns it because of WrestleMania and everything that I mentioned earlier. So what did that do? Well, the history on that is a little bit mixed because there would only be one more show at Joe Louis Arena. It would be less than a month after the title change and it only drew 1,000 with a main event of Garvin and Dusty Rhodes falling to Lex Luger and Ric Flair. But as you go along, they moved to the smaller Kobo Hall, which is next door. And they did draw some decent crowds. They drew 4,000 in April, and then 7,000 in July, and 7,500 September 4th of 1988. So a little bit bigger there, not quite to the level of the 8,000 they drew for this one. But by October, after Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard have jumped to the WWF, they're down to 1,300, and that is pretty much that. As you trace Ron Garvin through, it's not like he became some sort of cult hero in Detroit, because by the following July, he had his heel turn against Dusty Rhodes at the Bash, and he's facing Tim Horner in a 50-second squash match in Detroit. So the kind of the bloom was off the rose at that point, and it just kind of makes me think that when Garvin loses the title to Flair, he ends up in a feud with Kevin Sullivan in the Varsity Club, which I guess is fine, but you might want to turn him heel a little bit sooner than what he did. It was sort of a mutual respect thing with J.J. Dillon and Ronnie Garvin as it turned out. 
So maybe you could have done something with him then. He left because he was unhappy with how he was looking that he was going to be booked. But on its own, this match itself is is truly great. I was thinking about Jim Cornette, and I watched one of his comments on this. He said they were beating the flesh off of each other, like taking epidermis off you know the the top layer of skin always kind of bugged me that one simpsons where nelson says your epidermis is showing and then he says your epidermis means your hair i don't know maybe it's supposed to be because nelson is stupid i appreciate all the ready garden fans for their support Just sort of pondering this, I wonder if you could set up a double turn with Flair and Garvin between now and Starcade. I know that screws up the Four Horsemen, and it might be a little too tight of a window, and double turns are pretty difficult to execute. I mean, you see Bret Hart and Steve Austin, you think that that's easy, but it's probably a little bit more difficult, more like the Powers of Pain and Demolition at Survivor Series 88, where you know sometimes the crowd might not know. But if you do it that way, then Flair is the crowd favorite going in, and they want, all want to see him regain that title off Garvin. But again, like I said, it's a really tough window. And if you do that, then maybe you don't get those Flair promos from October and November of 87 that I love so much, where he is just spitting straight fire about not being the champ anymore. As I said, his best promo year ever. He, he's so angry, he's almost like me talking about the British Museum. But at the end of the day, I think the lesson here is you can have a short-term transitional champion, but you probably don't want to make it completely obvious that he's going to lose it right away, and especially if he's going to lose it back to the same guy he just won it from. I'm not sure how money that is. And that is NWA Worldwide for October 3rd, 1987. And before I wrap this up and do my podcast plugs for everybody else, on the Wrestling Podcast About Nothing with Ring of Honor's Brian Malonis and Mike Crockett, they are trucking through the territories. That's not really much of a honk. I mean, I am pretty congested from traveling and all that. But they are looking at the Central States Territory. One of the more ones that are notorious for being bad, in part because of Ric Flair saying he never liked wrestling in Kansas City, mainly because the promoter, not exactly uh, free with the money, shall we say. And also, not, not the best opponents for Ric while he was there, at least you know for the times that Harley Race was not around. And on the Our Vantage Point podcast, a very interesting show that they reviewed on this episode. It was one that I covered, I want to say about a year ago, a WCW Worldwide from June of 1994, shortly after Hulk Hogan gets there. And I li- as I was listening, I was trying to remember, what was my joke hook for the show that I did? And I remembered... Oh, yeah, that's right. It was that weird Frank Anderson video where all of a sudden he's topless and just, or no, completely naked and just covering his dick with a towel as it shows up on YouTube. Very, very kind of unnerving. But do check out those two podcasts. And 
Also, the Sportscasters with Steve Bennett, the latest episode is with Ben Ryder of Sports Illustrated, who recently wrote a cover story on Alex Rodriguez for the Where Are Were They Now issue. I'm going to give that a read, even though Alex Rodriguez for a Where Are They Now, I'm not entirely sure why you do that. He's literally on ESPN doing a game every week. I liked it better when it would be like Refrigerator Perry, and it would be, oh yeah, he's working construction down in Alabama, and he's the most popular guy on the site because everybody loves him he's a big teddy bear I, I like the stuff like that also author mark cram jr had a book has a book out now on smoking joe frazier and that is it for my podcast plugs but i do have one more thing and that is another edition of youtube comment theater since this episode does have 191 comments from actual YouTube users who are actual people. Some of them even have avatars as I'm quickly just sort of scrolling through and seeing them. GGZ Oman says, Many people don't mention how dangerous that Garvin's finisher was. He did a somersault off the top rope. That's not easy to do. And in fact, Garvin did that move in the Starcade match as well, but only got a two count. Once again, those Ric Flair callbacks to previous title matches. I particularly enjoy those. William Mack says, this is about Starcade match, thought this match was better than the one they had at Starcade 87. And having watched both of them fairly close together, I'd say that they're pretty even, although I would give the edge to this Detroit match, even if the commentary, well, like I said, David Crockett solo, maybe not what I'm looking for versus Shivani and Jim Ross on the Starcade broadcast. But I give that from a pure match perspective, I'm going to give the edge to this one. Maybe it's because of the baby face going over. I seem to be biased towards that. Like my favorite Steamboat Flare match is the Chi-Town Rumble one. So maybe there is some sort of bias. D. Wainers, 13, has a personal story about this one. I've been looking for this match for years. I hitchhiked to the Windsor-Detroit border with some friends to see this card. It was huge. Every major NWA wrestler was there. All the belts were on the line. The place went nuts at this match. When my parents found out, they grounded me for a month, but it was worth it. Thanks for posting this. And it's one thing that I did not mention about Detroit is it's kind of a backdoor way to get into Ontario because Windsor is just across the water from Detroit. So you could maybe get into Ontario that way instead of through Toronto or or any of the other cities over there, Hamilton. John Paulson says, Another thing that this match showed was that if you bought a ticket to a non-pay-per-view show, you might see a major title change hands. Back in those days, house shows were a major source of revenue for the pro wrestling companies. WWF actually did that, I want to say, with the tag team titles in 93, where they had Money, Inc. and the Steiner Brothers switch it back and forth to kind of goose house show business. You don't really see it as much now. Uh, maybe a couple of instances of it in more recent years, but obviously the business was very different back in those days. Iron 5 says one of the most underrated title matches of all time, along with Barry Windham versus Ric Flair. And I think part of the reason why this might be underrated is because of of the way people are conditioned to look back at Ronnie Garvin's time as champion, but also because with the WWE Network now five plus years old, this match itself is not actually on there. It's only the footage from the Saturday World Championship Wrestling Show. Jeremy Eggleston says, The lead-up to this title change, the feud with Flair versus the Garvins, was done so well and is very underrated. Yet you get Jimmy into Ronnie, Ronnie interrupts the date with Precious, and that's how you set up this feud. And Flair's promos from even back then 
are really great because of how he's trying to woo Precious and do that whole thing. Mark Bowman says, Another example, sadly, of a main event caliber wrestler, Ronnie Garvin, who was then, when he made it to New York, I think was underutilized and his biggest claim to fame in the WWF was the feud with Greg Valentine till the retirement match. I don't know about till the retirement match because the feud was basically out of that retirement match. They had the one and then the rematch was a retirement match and then the feud runs for another nine months. And as I said weeks ago, I think that that was the best possible use for both Valentine and Garvin in the WWF because... They were a little bit different than everybody else. They were sort of more NWA style. So just put them in the ring against each other, and they can have whatever match they want to have and just kind of stand out from everything else. And finally, Troy Elich says, I remember Cornette once referring to Garvin as, quote, the Barney Rubble of professional wrestling. I think of that every time I see a Garvin match, LOL. And I don't think we're going to do any better than that. Although I think Pat Patterson, when it comes to Quebec wrestlers, sounds a little bit more like Barney Rubble. That'll do it for YouTube Comment Theater. Next week, I have ECW from June of 1997, featuring the Tommy Dreamer versus Raven final battle before Raven departs for the greener pastures of World Championship Wrestling. Also, Taz versus Sabu, Taz versus Shane Douglas. I have no problem with more ECW Taz on this show because I love him so, so much. And Coming up, future episodes, I saw a thing on Apple Music where you should leave a review at Apple Podcasts for Greens Malatown. Five stars is most definitely appreciated. When somebody said, how come you haven't done any USWA from the early early to mid-90s? I, I'm going to, since I clearly have more time to actually watch the product, I'm trying to decide between uh, something like when Terry Funk was facing Jerry Lawler in late 1990, so does the Mick stuff from Vince McMahon in Memphis from 1993 into 1994 or the stuff from 95 where it gets a little bit bad and silly and hokey at least you know from what I've heard I've seen some of those videos up on YouTube as well and yes the Portland wrestling show is going to be coming as well uh, probably one from 1980 a lot of different stuff coming up on Greetings from Allentown. Hopefully my voice is a little bit better than what it is right now, although my wife's friend who lives in London blamed the air quality there. I don't I don't know if the air quality is any worse in London. Maybe the construction that was going around around my hotel. I thought that was funny how they were installing broadband because I was thinking, huh, they did this in Massachusetts in like 1997. So, and I'm not entirely sure what took them so long. As I said, maybe they had to steal it from India first so that they could then put it into Britain. That's how things are generally done. Couldn't resist taking one final shot at my gracious host, the Brits, over the past week. So anyway, that should wrap it up for me here. But do tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Great Eggs from Allentown. for wild and crazy guys all this coming week on Baltimore's 54 8 o'clock movie. Monday night, it's Chevy Chase in Modern Problems here on Baltimore 54.